All right. With great data comes even greater access latency. Welcome to the Presso Community Broadcast, where we transform your latency woes into fast insights. I am Brian Olson. I'm Manfred Mosa. And we are also joined here today by a very special guest, Martine. Welcome. Hi, Brian. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Presto Community Broadcast, the show where we cover events and happenings within the open source Presto community and show off some cool stuff about Presto and also have a whole bunch of technical difficulties with our sound. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, today we're, uh, we're going to be covering a lot of pretty neat stuff. Uh, so, in this whole series where we've been kind of building up to uh, dynamic filtering, uh, which is kind of a big subject onto its own, we wanted to cover a lot of smaller topics. So, in previous episodes we've we've covered uh high partitioning we've covered uh just to basically get an understanding of partitioning in general we last episode we were covering uh planning and kind of some of the steps that happen uh, to go from query into like planning and then today we're covering more specifically on the cost base optimizer so uh cost base optimizer is a very interesting subject uh we'll we'll jump into that and probably not get too far ahead of ourselves um we have a pr that's you know kind of related it's uh it's about decorrelation from subquery so it's all within that kind of planning and and uh optimizing mix and then uh we are covering the question does presto make my rdbms faster so a uh, common question we get on the community side of things um uh, before we hop into any of that let's go to our uh, starburst advertisement and we'll be uh, right back in a sec i'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors starburst for hosting this show Starburst is an enterprise offering that builds upon open source Presto distribution. The main vectors you improve are you upon showing when screen, you by the way? Starburst are performance, support, and simplicity to deploy. The performance gains come from an enterprise suite of Presto connectors yeah. that improve upon the open source connectors by offering parallel implementations and improved statistics exposed On to Zoom, the cost-based no. optimizer. There are also connectors that don't exist in the open source projects, such as the Snowflake connector and Delta Lake connector, and many other that prove useful in many enterprise applications. My favorite thing that Starburst yeah, offers cool. is how they take away the pain of deployment, deployment security, and scaling awesome. your Presto cluster up by offering Kubernetes deployments <laughs> on multiple cloud platforms. This relieves a lot of pressure from your ops team and offers them a slick user interface called Mission Control that makes the management of your cross-platform clusters easy. Finally, they have a team of experts that are available to address any issues you experience. This team includes the original founders of Presto, a dedicated customer success team, and even Manfred and myself. We clearly think the product is great, but don't take our word for it. Try Presto for free. Head on over to starburstdata.com to learn more. And now back to the show. All right, so before we hop into uh, Cost Space Optimizer, Manfred, we have uh, released 348, 348 this week. Yeah, this time it got even closer to our our, time, our identical timing that we have sometimes, right? Like it just was released like three days ago. Yeah. It kept going like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to make it. it. It's uh, interesting how that all works out always. Um, and I'm <laughs> very happy that it did make it again. So Otherwise, uh, we would have talked a little more about 347, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. There's always so much going on. Yeah. Uh, we can always talk about ongoing PRs, but sure. that's a different story. <laughs> no, like uh, as Martino also announced, there's a whole bunch of, pretty big features. We got OAuth 2 authorization in the web UI happening. So that's on the plan towards uh, getting more and more like, you know, single sign-on systems supported uh, for the web UI and in general also for other clients that's that's now in. 
We got S3 streaming uploads working. Again, more performance improvements on the order by limit queries mm -hmm. and the distinct aggregation in uh, correlated subqueries also works. Um, oh, what nice. really, what really uh, blew me away is, and Martin can maybe tell us a bit more about that, is there were a lot of changes on the JDBC driver. What was what was going on there? Did someone like just like focus on this? Whoa! Or? Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, so. Uh, since we added, um, well, there's a couple of things here. We added support for variable precision uh, uh, time, uh, daytime types uh, over the past few releases, and there were some loose ends that need to be tied up, uh, specifically some edge cases around rounding and and truncation of time. So that's one one area of uh, of improvements. The other is uh, we are. So, so JDC has this weird, weird behavior when uh, JDC comes from a, a, like all the way back to the first versions of Java. Yeah. And, and when dealing with daytime types, it uses the uh, the built-in types in the in the in the JDK, like date and time and and so on. And those are notoriously problematic in terms of how they manage uh, time zones, how they 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 are stateful objects, uh, they they are mutable objects, and so on. So one of the things we've been doing is extending the the API, the JDC APIs, to be able to use the, the new uh, Java time uh, objects and classes that are available in recent versions of Java that are safer to use. They are uh, they have more well-defined semantics, so that will be able that, that will make it possible for anyone that's trying to interact with Presto and extract uh, daytime data to be able to do it uh, in, a, in a much more reliable way. So quick tangent on that, like, so when you take the actual interface, are you converting those time types, uh, right? Basically as they get sent in from the one that's being sent into like the J JDBC interface, is, is that how we're doing that or? So, uh, there, there's an encoding that happens, uh, when data comes out of Presto and that's, uh, it's very, it uses a JSON based encoding right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's independent of JDBC. So the, the JDBC driver sees that data and then what it did up until now is it would try to convert it to the Java classes, uh, from the old JDBC mm -hmm. specification. And what we have is the ability to convert them to some of the new the new types like for example if you look at um actually, let me look at the release notes here briefly you just um, tell me a number which uh yeah for example in the in the second line in the jdc driver that says oh actually the first one that says allow reading timestamp with time zone as zoned daytime um that that means that now when you got you have a JDC result set, you can say I want the value of this column using this specific type. Okay. And this is a new type. It's not covered by JDBC, but we allow you to get it using that that uh, class to be able to get more precise semantics and and, and safer usage. Very cool. So, so if we so if you're like uh, listening on the podcast, this is basically we're talking about the JDBC API, and so uh, they have this generic result set dot get object class, and you can actually specify the class there. And so this is how I, it seems like we've circumvented that uh, the old school uh, date types, and now we're using the new Java time date date types. Very cool. Right. Yeah. So with with those changes to the new data API, have you like observed any performance kind of like changes as well? Like I know that the old calendar class, for example, was super heavy to instantiate and a pain to carry around. 
and there were a lot of right. improvements when shoulder time was adopted and then uh, into the JDK. I mean, we haven't measured it, and there might be some <clears throat> some uh, improvement. Well, I guess I guess someone should should take a look at that. In general, it probably won't matter much because the bottleneck for when when dealing with uh, JDC talking to Presto is going to be so that, getting the, data the out of the server. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Cool. Cool. Right, so that's what that's what was in the official announcement. And then I have a few other things that I thought were kind of cool. So there's a new show stats command that you can go show stats for your query, which is just something that's not necessarily useful uh, unless you like want to geek around and play and see what's happening. And that's always fun. So uh, I, I encourage you to play around with that just to see like what's what like affects your query and a bit of the statistics of it going on. Um, Another thing that is important for people that um, are on the bleeding edge and played around with the Hive translation uh, with the new Coral subsystem, there is a new property added that allows you to either switch the Hive translations off completely, use the new one, or, and that's also uh, now possible to switch to the old legacy one. So we had some people that rely on some behavior of the legacy one, hmm. some people rely on uh, and really like the new one. So now it's possible to really choose between which one of those are important. So that's yeah, cool. I want to make a comment on that. So uh, originally, like uh, Presto wasn't able to query Hive views because the they, yeah. Hive views use Hive syntax, Hive semantics. So there was no way to reliably do that. Uh, at some point we said, okay, we're going to allow uh, Presto to read those views and uh, and, and basically interpret them as if they were Presto queries. So this was a like a, a very straightforward, not very safe way to interpret the high views because, for example, you may have a view that says, I don't know, select from uh, some table where and some filter that uh, invokes some function that has different semantics in Presto than in Hive, and you would end up getting different results than if you run the if you query the same view from Hive. So, but we said, okay, that this will make it easier for, or will enable some use cases like people use high views just as a way to constrain the number of columns that are produced by a table or doing some very simple filtering and transformation. So we said, okay, we're gonna add this. It's gonna be an experimental feature. People have to be aware that uh, there may be safety problems or, or correctness issues in terms of, you may get the wrong results. Uh, you may get uh, different results than, than Hive and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with with a night towards having proper support in the future, I mean, we knew LinkedIn was working on Coral. We have been working with them, uh, collaborating with them to eventually integrate that into Presto as a, as a more principled way of doing translation of, of those high views into Presto. Mm -hmm. So when that uh, when we finally integrated that, it turns out that well, Coral doesn't support everything. So some things that people are relying on. Uh, in the in the breaking, so we say, okay, let's introduce a flag to be able to restore the old potentially broken behavior just as a transition. Okay. Um, and and while we make the coral integration and support more robust, at some point that will be solid enough that uh, we'll be able to just get rid of the of that legacy flag, and yeah. and then the the implementation based on coral will be the uh, the the single and, uh, and and proper implementation for doing that. Yeah. The really cool aspect that I want to point out there, and that's maybe not something everyone in the community knows, is that you are very closely working with the engineers at LinkedIn on that coral integration, and you're helping them find corner cases and like get them fixing it and so stuff. And I, I love that aspect of really working closely and getting 
for the benefit of both projects, basically. So that's that's really cool, I think. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a, a big. Uh, I mean, it's it's a community project. It's a big community and collaborative effort. So yeah. Yeah. How many uh, engineers? How many engineers do we typically work with over on, on LinkedIn side? I feel like I've seen at least like three in the community, kind of uh, actively making changes. I mean, they have a large. Uh, I mean, they have a team of, I know, uh, I know, maybe eight to ten people, I think, and, yeah. and it keeps growing. So pretty cool. I know not everyone is a developer on Presto. They they of course have to support Presto on their own. Uh, for their own uh, deployment and installation, so yeah. they kind of uh, split the time. But but yeah, it's like they're making a, a big. They've been making a big investment in Presto, and they're uh, growing their usage and and their team. Nice. While you have it up on the screen, there, by the way, there's a whole bunch of other Hive Connect improvements again, as usual. Something that always seems to happen in every release. Is there anything specifically you want to point out, Martin? I think uh, I think it's sort of like through the gamut, sort of like various ones. There's nothing that I thought really pointing out. What I did, however, think is it's really cool that the Iceberg connector, which is kind yep. of related, now supports GCP and Azure. So there's really a bit of a a bit of an effort going on there in getting that one up to snuff. So that's really cool. I feel like the future, right? <laughs> future future <laughs> Hive connector, and at least it won't be called the Hive connector. <laughs> cool. Well, that 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 iceberg connector has come around pretty quickly recently. I think there's been quite a lot of development. It's gone like David Strike was working on it quite efficiently and like got lots done there. I think and that was really great. Yeah, yeah that's another one. There's uh, there's a big uh, there's a lot of interest from many organizations and people to be able to support the iceberg more more uh, more fully. Uh, LinkedIn is has been making some investments. Netflix. Of course, uh, Starburst and, and there are other companies like Amazon and Apple that are interested in, in making. Do you have any connections? At, uh, at so, are you working with the upstream Apache project directly as well? Or... Uh, we, we are. Yeah, we are. Yes. Yeah, there, there oh, are there are a number of things that yeah, Iceberg is evolving, and there are a number of things that uh, needed to be defined or were were not well specified. And as as we went through the process of implementing the connector, we we work specifically. Uh, David Bill has been working with the Iceberg project to make sure that everything is is properly specified, so we can. That makes sense. That. We need to do an awesome. Iceberg show and just pull David on then at one of these one of these times. It'll be a good one, probably. Yeah. And then the last one is like as usual. There were like a small SBI changes, but that's only applies for people that implement their own connectors. But always useful to know about. For sure. Cool. Well, uh, do you have anything else you want to cover on the release? Not on my end. Okay. 349, here we come. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think uh, one last thing to, to uh, say before we hop into the, uh, the um, basically the interview or the concept of the, of the week is uh, we, we do have a, a quick uh, announcement about uh, Data Nova. Uh, so I'll, I'll actually just say if you want to go to starburstdata.com slash Data Nova, um, so go to starburstdata.com-datanova. It's a free event. Um, 
There's uh, it's there's two tracks. There's kind of a technical track that that most listeners of the podcast will be interested in. I'm um, gonna have a lot of speakers. Uh, basically, anybody from data scientists to uh, uh, you know, Martine is is gonna be speaking as well um, within the group of uh, of uh, Martine, Dane, and David. <laughs> so uh, uh, and then just basically uh, a couple people that have you know uh, like uh, this this guy here, Ahmad, is gonna be giving a talk about uh, building up the semantic layer at uh, RBC um, using Presto as their uh, as their semantic layer over different uh, uh, data stores. So it's going to be a really cool, uh, fun time and, uh, y- you know, still virtual uh, as we kind of get hopefully closer to the end of this uh, pandemic. But uh, uh, check it out uh, and uh, hopefully see you there and uh, um, register for it. Um, outside of that, there's really not too many events or news to be reporting on now. Uh, so we'll hop right into uh, cost based optimizer. Um, so I'm going to give a quick uh, backup to what we had talked about last uh, episode, just so that we can kind of build some context for anybody who missed episode six. Um, so basically, we we were talking about you know the the journey that a, a query takes from the time that you hit enter uh, on the CLI uh, or on your you know BI tool, whatever it it may be, um, and how that query kind of transforms along uh, along the line of uh, basically until we get to where we're talking to the optimizer is where we stopped last episode. So just to catch you up, what happens is we use, we have a parser that basically parses the, the uh, you know, string query that you have into uh, an abstract syntax tree representation. And this is just a very useful syntax for what the next process, which is the analyzer. This analyzer can then uh, re- make reasonings about this, uh, these different, uh, you know, Identifiers, that's what we're calling it here, or you could say like, you know, column, column identifiers uh, and verify like, does that column identifier actually exist or is there, you know, any type of SQL issues um, that, uh, that, you know, this database, uh, we don't have connectivity to it, things like that. Uh, the analyzer can actually verify that everything Every column that's being referenced actually is not, you know, duplicated or, or having some specific uh, reference that it's actually talking to. From the analyzer, once we've take, gone from this uh, uh, form of AST and analyzed and make sure everything is uh, is syntactically correct and, and actually uh, something that makes sense, then we move on to a planning phase. And so the planner is going to initially generate uh, a plan IR, uh, and which is intermediate representation, and is basically yet another tree. But this tree is now uh, trying to describe the way or the the steps that we're going to need to take in order to uh, execute this query. And so initially, a lot of things that may be even duplicated or or just maybe uh, you know something that can be simplified, uh, the planner is going to initially come up with a plan that that uh, you know can remove some uh, duplication and. Uh, basically just uh, get this initial representation going. And then uh, we then go through various iterations, uh, which will be uh, running through rules that will uh, be basically the optimizer. So um, at this point, I'm going to ask Martine to kind of basically correct me on anything I, I screwed up there. Uh, and then also kind of, you know, go over his version of, of describing the optimizer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, one one thing I wanted to uh, to clarify. So the the I mean you you, you said the 
So the parser produces the HT, which is which is accurate. The job of the analyzer is to make sure that the the tree, which is the syntactic representation of the query, is semantically valid. Mm -hmm. For example, if you have a group by clause uh, and aggregations, uh, the the analyzer is responsible to to make sure that. For example, all the columns are in the group by clause, or they are properly uh, proper aggregation uh, functions. Cool. If that's not the case, then it will complain with say, saying this column is missing in your group by clause or, or something like that. You also uh, make sure that, for example, if you are comparing, uh, if you're invoking a comparison operator, like you're doing uh, A greater than B, uh, you need to make sure that A and B are compatible with respect to comparison. For example, yeah. you cannot compare a number with a string. So you make sure that those, those types uh, are compatible or that, that there needs to if there needs to be some kind of coercion between that uh, uh, to make that that comparison uh, valid then it will it will determine that and it will make a note of that because that's information that the planner later needs to be able to produce that intermediate representation very good yeah that's way more elegant eloquent than uh than how i described it yes <laughs> um okay so then we we hop into the planner and and this is kind of where things you know it's pretty clear that you have the ast that's generated by the the parser and then you do your syntax you're basically checking the syntax using the analyzer but then when you get to the planner versus the kind of optimizer phase you know one of my kind of confusions coming in was like if you if you are, you know, where does planning begin and, and end and where does optim or where does planning end and where does optimizing uh, begin when you're talking about the planner and, op and optimizer, you know, they're, they're handling these kind of different variations of, of this plan IR and ultimately building up to the plan that you'll execute. But, um, but at what part are we talking about the planner and what part are we talking about the optimizer or are they the same thing? Yeah, I, I think it's it's not a useful distinction to talk about planner versus optimizer. I mean, if, if you if you want to separate that, you would, you, I mean, you have you would have to say that the planner is just the translation from the AST into the IR, right? It's just a, almost a mechanical translation. It's like if you have a from clause mm -hmm. uh, with a table, then that that turns into a table scan node. If you have a, a the where converts into a filter node, and a group by turns turns into an aggregation node, and so on. So that's kind of the planning step, but it's, it's not very interesting to talk about it as a, as a separate thing because it's, it's almost like a mechanical operation. Okay. Um, when I when you say when I talk about planner and optimizer, I, I always see them as part of the same thing. It's like the job of the planner slash optimizer is to take the AST with all the annotations that the the analyzer produced, saying this. This specific AST operation needs to be uh, needs to have a coercion between here and there, and so on. Or any metadata is needed. For example, this table reference references this concrete, this specific table from this connector, and these are the columns that are available and the types and so on. So it's the job of the planner slash optimizer to take that and produce a uh, a, a, a form of the IR that is executable and efficiently executable, right? Mm -hmm. So it does that by by doing the first first the initial translation to the IR and then subjecting the I, that that initial representation through a number of transformations to make it um, more optimal. Like transformations could be, for example, removing duplicated uh, operations or pushing down filters because there's an expectation that filtering things early is going to result in in a more efficient query. Mm. Uh, at some point. 
converting that initial representation, which is high level logical representation in something, into something more physical that includes, for example, the choice of joint ties that are gonna be performed. Are you gonna do a partition join or a broadcast join? Um, are you gonna have exchanges in the middle because you wanna parallelize the execution of the, of the query across multiple machines or across multiple threads? Mm -hmm. So all those are uh, transformations that the optimizer performs uh, based on, on an understanding of what operations are gonna be more efficient than others and are gonna lead to more performance or lower latency. Cool. So there's in the book, we, there's the, we describe like a, uh, I should say you two describe your two, two of the authors right here. Um, so you both describe, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, there's a logical, uh, segment of the query. And then there's like a, uh, time where it becomes a distributed query. And it's pretty clear roughly what that means is like, you get the plan IR to a particular phase and it's logical, but then you have to actually like rubber meets the road. You actually have to figure out, okay, like reasoning, reasoning about how many workers you have versus, uh, how many sources, uh, are you're pulling data from, is this also part of the optimizer or is this planner part? And, and is this, uh, you know, is it, when I, when I say, is it part of the optimizer, I should be more specific. Like, is this, uh, one of the phases of this planner optimizer? Uh, or is this going to be uh, something that happens kind of afterwards in the scheduler? And there are some things that happen during the optimization phase. Like, for example, uh, the cost-based optimization rule, I mean, there's a, a, one of the transformations can take advantage of a, uh, a cost model and uh, in order to make decisions about the order of joins and the type of joins. Uh, one of the things he looks at is what is the number of workers that you have available right now mm -hmm. in the cluster? And that's important, for example, if you're deciding whether you're going to do a partition join versus a broadcast join. Because yep. if you happen to do a broadcast join and you have a thousand workers, then uh, one side of the query is going to be broadcasted to a thousand machines. And, and that takes memory. So that's, yep. that plays a, a, a role in, the, in determining maybe it's better to do a partition join instead because we use less memory. So... Uh, there is that that aspect of it, but uh, it's not until execution time when we when the the, the Presto engine makes decisions about which nodes are going to get assigned which piece of work, which parts of the plan to process, uh, and so on. Okay, I mean that that's not considered during during the optimization phase. Okay, but that's that's important to understand. Like when the when the query planning is happening, the number of nodes that are available is one of the sort of like fixed numbers that that are taken into account. And the same, like one of the other things that influence what happens in planning is the actual information that comes out. So when we talk about cost-based optimizer versus just a normal planner and optimizer, what's very important to understand is in order for the cost-based optimizer to work, it needs to know not just about these are the tables. It also needs to have what's called table statistic information. So it needs to know that one table on the join is like a small lookup table versus a transactional table with millions of records, right? Like otherwise, if it doesn't have that information, it can't make the right choice. And maybe Martin, you can tell us a bit what those stats are that are important that are taken into account mainly and also where they come from, right? Like they come from the connector and are supplied by the underlying database. But what are some of those statistics that have a, a big impact maybe? Yeah, and, and, and one thing to come, uh, want to comment on before is that one way to think about the cost-based optimizations is that 
um, without any knowledge. I mean, if the only knowledge you have is that you're going to have uh, a certain set of tables involved in the in the query with with different columns uh, or a certain number of columns, the only decisions you can make are based on on that information. It's like, well, you know that filters of this type are generally better than filters of uh, if you do them early than if you do them later. So you, you always push them down. So it's like uh, there's not not much uh, uh, freedom you have in terms of of, of making the certain decisions of do I transform the plan in this way or that way. Uh, when we talk about cost-based optimizations, we're saying okay, if you get more detailed information about the tables, like for example, if you know uh, how big they are, if you know uh, the something about the distribution of data in the tables, then you can you can use that to uh, to make finer decisions about, for example, if you if you are doing a join and you know one table is bigger than the other, uh, and because of the way Presto works uh, or how, how it performs joins, it's better to place one of the tables in memory uh, and then stream stream and probe the other table. So, by knowing that information, you can make slightly better decisions about uh, how you're going to execute the query that you wouldn't be able to do if you if you didn't have that information. So, some of the factors that coming to play here are things like uh, for every column, and this is something that, that Presto can, can, can look at. For every column, it can look at what is the, what is the minimum and maximum value, um, uh, how many nulls or the fraction of nulls uh, for, I mean, for a row, what is the average size of a row, uh, what is the, the number of rows that a table has. And then it, it, it combines that with a bunch of heuristics about uh, how selective filters are going to be how uh, a model of how much memory uh, a join, the joints, one of the size of the joints is going to take once data is loaded in memory. Uh, and then you can take advantage of that to figure out, okay, given all this information, I'm better off doing a distributed join or a I mean, partition join versus a broadcast join. Hmm. Or, or I'm better off um, swapping the order of these two tables. Or if, I, if you have multiple tables, I, I, I'm better off ordering in this specific way as they get joined together. Um, so those are some of the factors that come into play, and then and then based on those factors, uh, there's a this is like a, it's a model of it's an abstract model of uh, based on the on those factors and the shape of the plan, how much CPU is going to be used, how much network uh, data is going to be transferred over the network, how much memory is going to require be required for operations like joins and aggregations and so on, and then they all all those are combined into one metric that allows the engine to make decisions about this is better than this order of joins is better than this other order of joins and then you can pick one or the other how do you and, and then of course oh. go ahead yeah 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 i was gonna say yeah of course those those uh statistics about the the minimum and maximum values the number of nulls and so on need to be provided by the connector for the specific tables involved in the in the query, and different connectors have different strategies for how they they collect those stats, how they uh, manage them, and so on. For example, in the case of Hive, the stats get uh, get stored in the Hive Metastore as part of the table metadata uh, or partition metadata. It can be granular and done to partition. In the case of Iceberg, they 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 can also be at the table level, at the partition level, and Iceberg can store stats more granularly and eventually expose them to Presto as part of the, of the query planning process. 
Man. Or stats are also typically like something that, like, I mean, this whole cost-based optimizer idea is something that's been around for quite a long time in like relational databases and stuff like that, right? So they all store that as part of the information schema, I'm assuming, right? Or have Absolutely. some process yeah. to get it yeah. there, right? And my- Yeah, my... it's typically data is associated with, with tables, like whether it's part of the metadata or stored separately, that's up to like different databases implement them differently. So also the mechanism to get them generated isn't always like I know from like writing docs on various connectors, it's always different. Like you have to just find out is your system doing that automatically or not, or have to kick it off. And how often does it have to be refreshed? Because like some of those operations actually take time to find out. Right. Um, so um, you just have to check how that works each time. And how do we decide, you know, if there's, when we're when we're let's say introducing a new type of uh, optimization, uh, you know what? How do we decide that it's not overanalyzing the you know, or it's going to add more? It's get, basically getting, there's not going to be a good enough trade-off. Or do we ever kind of have we ever th considered an optimization and then we realize like in in reality like or whenever we actually tr tested things out, things were actually slower because the optimization phase ended up taking more time and generally than the actual optimization itself. Has that ever taken place? That generally doesn't happen. I mean, the, the optimization taking longer than the actual uh, query processing that generally doesn't happen. I mean, as we start focusing more and more on, on super low latency queries, it may become a factor. Uh, but then again, you're typically dealing with small tables with smaller queries if you're if you're doing super low latency queries. So that mm. tends to cancel each other out. Um, now we've seen we, there are cases where there's no one size fits all for an optimization. Uh, you may have an optimization that is good in some cases and and makes things worse in other cases. Um, the there there are like longer term there are a couple couple of different ways to to deal with that and in the short term what we do is we say okay if, if there's no definitive way to go it's like if we can't say that this is always better uh, than than this other choice what we typically do is we add a toggle uh, to presto via either session properties or configuration so that users have a way to fall back to the old behavior if uh, if the optimization introduces a regression for some use case. And then uh, the idea is that with that, we have a, we have a way to uh, allow people to use the, the optimization, see how it behaves. If there are problems, we can look at it. We can, we can see if there's tweaks we can make, there's changes we can make to make it better and satisfy more, more cases. And if there is just no, no other way that we'll keep the, the session property for a while. Uh, to have people to allow people to have have that choice. I mean, that's not ideal, but it's kind of a, a escape hatch if um, if there are no other options. In the long term, in the longer term, the idea is is to make so right now Presto does cost-based optimizations only for joint reordering and joint type selection. So, what we want to do in the longer term is to make the entire optimizer uh, be able to reason about cost. And and there are I mean again, this is nothing new in in the in the in database world, there, there's a, a lot of literature. Like the, there's an architecture called the Cascades framework. Uh, there are frameworks like CalSight that do things like this. And this kind of the direction we're we're moving into is like making the whole optimizer 
be aware of cost and be able to consider multiple plans at a given point in time and, and explore different options. And, and in, in this case, like when an optimization is maybe good for some cases, but not in other cases, hopefully the ability to reason about cost will help us uh, differentiate between them. But optimizers are also not a panacea. Like there's, you can't, you can't produce a perfect plan for everything because at the end of the day, it depends on exactly what data you're processing, exactly the shape of the plan, the operations you're performing. So you would need to execute the query to know which query, which execution form is optimal. Yeah. So longer term, I think the, the, the solution to this is to do more integration between the optimizer phase and the execution phase and make the the execution more adaptive. Like there are some some places where Prest is already adaptive uh, in, in terms of execution. For example, you can start writing a query, add more nodes, and, and the scan will spread out across more nodes that are, become available. Um, and there are there are mechanisms for doing load balancing across across machines and so on. So there's some level of adaptiveness, but there's opportunities for doing that uh, to a, a greater degree. And the idea, for example, being that the the execution engine can learn about what's going on, and then it can it can go back to either the optimizer or adapt itself, but potentially go back to the optimizer and say, "Hey, I learned this. Uh, yeah. Is there a way? Is there a way we can adjust the plan dynamically to uh, to make things more optimal, given what we know from where we started?" Um, so, again, this is all open to research and exploration, but I think that's kind of the, the future for. What we're doing so this yeah, would I actually think oh go ahead <laughs> i think theoretically it could even go towards down to things where like where you know that certain nodes are just closer to a certain data source and therefore should be used mm -hmm. to query from there rather than other nodes and all that kind of stuff so there's a lot of things that theoretically yeah. possible I just wanted to point something out that you sort of like brushed over and not all of our users are that experienced with presto uh, and that is in terms of what you said about configuring so there is operations that you like there's configurations for the optimizer that you said on a global level in our config.properties where you just enable or disable uh, an algorithm the next level down is in the catalog file so in your catalog properties that defines the connections to your data source you can configure it there and then the le last level down is for individual users and that's where the session properties come into play so you have a fine-grained well, control there yeah well, one, one, one thing to clarify, uh, I would consider the global and the catalog level part of the same thing. So these are configurations that get set statically when the server starts. When it starts. Some exactly. of the configurations, yeah, some of the configurations influence the engine, the core engine, and those are what you talked about, what you mentioned as global. Some configurations are specific to connectors, so okay. they belong in the catalogs. For example, um, uh, just to, to give you an example, you may have um, a configuration that says, don't optimize joint reordering or, or always pick this type of join. Uh, you can do automatic or you can say always pick a broadcast join or always pick a uh, partition join. And that's, a, and that's an engine configuration. Uh, but separately, you may have a configuration in the height connector that says, don't serve stats to Presto, or don't don't uh, even try to look up stats or compute stats. So that's got also a global configuration for the server, but it's it's specific to that connector and catalog because it, it it's that, that's important. Behavior. I think it's it's yeah. specific to that connector. 
uh, and catalogs. It's specific to that catalog specifically. So you can have multiple catalogs that all use the Hive connector. In some, it uses the, that configuration and others it doesn't, right? right? So, yeah. and that's important. So it's, it's really on the catalog level then. So right. you can adjust to whatever data you're querying there. So it's very flexible. And then the session property is, uh, what that means for users uh, is the session is you as a user working in your CLI and you can set that as a property and then for your session. So for you as a user, it behaves differently, which of course is like the finest grain because you are the person that submits the query. So you have to potentially have some understanding of what's going on there. Right? So. Well, and that's a question too, as like, I, I'm wondering how much, uh, and this is kind of geared towards Martine is like, does, how much does a user, let's say there's like the, the person who administers and, and uh, was the kind of engine, data engineer type that's running Presto uh, and kind of responsible for keeping its day-to-day operations uh, up and flowing. Uh, that person is one person and then another person is somebody who's like an analyst or anybody who, who's kind of like running a SQL query or maybe some UI that generates a SQL query. Um, and they, they pull it in there. Uh, they, they put that their query in there is that person, you know, is it, does it benefit them at all to kind of have any understanding of the cost based optimizer or should it just be a, a, a magic box to them? Well, in an ideal world, I would say it has to, <laughs> it should be a magic box. I mean, we, we've talked in, in, well, not, not in this context, right? In the past, we've talked about the goal of Presto is to be a, like a toaster. You mm-hmm. put bread in, you press a button, you get a, to- you get toast out, yeah. right? Uh, simple, simple interface, right? But uh, the realities are things are a lot more complicated. And throughout the evolution of of, of Presto as a as a technology, there will be instances where Presto is not sophisticated enough to be able to make certain decisions. So we need to leave that to users uh, mm-hmm. to do, uh, and that may be a temporary thing. It may be like right now, Presto is not capable of making that decision. Well. Uh, we're shooting or we're aiming towards a, um, a path where we are going to be able to do that at some point, but as a, as an interim thing, you, you have control in case, uh, the, the one size fits all doesn't fit your case. Got it. Very cool. It's a great, great discussion. Do you have any other questions on your end, Manfred or? Before we hop oh, on. I think my head is smoking a bit now. Right. <laughs> uh, did you have anything you wanted to kind of like say anything more you wanted to say about the cost based optimizer, Martin, before we moved on to the PR of the week? Um, no, I mean, you can just uh, keep going with that. Sure. Okay. Uh, very, very cool stuff. I mean, the cost based optimizer, I think it's one of those things, like, even from my standpoint today, it's just like, it seems it's, it's kind of like machine learning. It's like, it looks like a little magic, how it's able to handle all the stuff. But then when you kind of peel the layers back, you get to learn it's not so magical, but it's just, uh, and it has its own limitations and things like that. But it is definitely, uh, one of those parts of the, uh, of the architecture that is really fun to talk about. Um, so, so thanks for, uh, joining us, to mainly talk about this, but I think I could actually even probably use your help in this, uh, PR of the week. So without further ado, PR of the week, uh, we are covering a uh, pull request, uh, one, four, one, five. Uh, this is done by, um, Cassia, I think is the right, I don't know if it's Cassia or, if, uh, the correct pronunciation, but, uh, um, is a, uh, uh, Starburst engineer and also Presto contributor. Um, and so, uh, she really helped me even with understanding this, uh, uh, how this whole thing worked. Um, 
And to understand this, I think the more interesting part of this pull request, uh, we can actually pull it up just in case we need to reference anything. Um, so the cool part about this pull request, it's uh, the titles decorrelate subqueries uh, with limit or top end. And so for some people that might be like a mouthful and, and you may not know anything about that. So I, I think it's kind of fun to just uh, hop in and talk about what is uh, what are subqueries and what are what is uh, correlated subqueries. So, um, so basically to talk about subqueries, when you are dealing with SQL, you'll, you'll have, you know, kind of a select from where, uh, clause and, uh, it doesn't have to be all those, but, but, uh, just to build up the example, uh, say you have a select, uh, from some table and then where a equal is greater than some value. And let's say that value isn't just readily available in a column somewhere. Like you have to actually compute that value either from a different table or maybe even the same table. And so this subquery, you can basically, uh, SQL allows you to specify a subquery uh, where you're going to pull back, uh, run this query to basically analyze and, and pull back a, a value out of this query. And, um, and then that will be your value that could, you know, be analyzed within your, your where clause and, and actually, uh, you know, answer the parent query, which is like, you know, select a, ABC from table where a greater than some value. And then that, that value is, is the, where the subquery was done. So there's kind of two types of subqueries that that we'll we'll have. We'll have some subqueries that uh, will generate uh, something that can basically uh, be ran on its own, um, and basically you could you could run it once and utilize that uh, same value across every row in that parent query. Um, but then it, there are other cases where let's say you, you, where you would basically take a column from that parent query and use that as one of the criteria um, in, the, in the nested subquery. And in that particular case, we would call that a correlated subquery. And so uh, this would be something where, you know, same kind of query, select ABC uh, from table, and then A greater than, and then you're starting to specify your subquery. But then within that subquery, you specify from the outer table. I want to talk about that table, the column B from that table. And I want to compare it to column B from the table in my, in my nested subquery. So, um, so in this particular case, every single row... Um, uh, that uh, that executes on the parent table now has to compute this uh, basically run a, co a computation every single time for this row because we don't know uh, what t uh, the the basically the outer tables uh, uh, column is going to be so uh, until we're actually at that row and then we have to recompute that value every time. So uh, if that hopefully that wasn't too too convoluted, but uh, trying to basically vocalize what uh, what I'm what I'm seeing on a screen here, so that podcast listeners have some uh, understanding of what we were about to talk about. So, so Brian, Brian, I have one one uh, comment for for people that I mean, if, if you're a, a programmer, if you if you know any modern languages, especially functional languages. A correlated subquery is effectively like a, a lambda expression that captures values from the outer context. So just like in a programming language, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, that has a lambda that captures things for every invocation of the 
outer variables, you would need to create a new capture, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's what the subquery, the subquery does. And that's why it's called correlator. It's like it captures values of the outer query and then needs to execute uh, in, in its entirety with those values to produce a result. Yeah, that's a, and I, I saw, we had uh, discussed this before the show and, and uh, that was a really good analogy. That's uh, kind of simplifies it a lot. Um, so, uh, and so I, I, yeah, totally agree. And then in this particular case, uh, actually going along with your, uh, with your analogy, uh, I'll, I'll take it a little further, um, is that uh, if we're talking about decorrelating then, um, and we basically want to see, if we basically are trying to see, is there a way that we can kind of uh, take all these values that get, uh, that could possibly get generated or, or are generated from this inner query and uh, kind of uh, basically make that those into either like, like if you're thinking functional programming, kind of an array, or uh, you could think of, uh, you know, just like a list of values or, um, you know, or if it does end up getting uh compressed down to like even a single value. Um, and so, uh, so that is ultimately what this, uh, this particular, uh, PR is trying to do is it's trying to run a decorrelation, uh, on these subqueries. So basically make it to where you can run ev everything that you'll need beforehand, be like, uh, before you're running the outer query and that will generate that, that set of uh, values. And then you, uh, from there, you'll actually be able to uh, perform the the uh, kind of. This could be either done in, in conceptually like a join, or it can be, uh, you know, you could think of it as as more of like uh, just basically pre-computing the, the those list of values or flattening those values uh, to run in the outer loop. Uh, I don't know if that. Do you have any any sim smarter way of saying <laughs> that or eloquent way of of uh, phrasing that, Martine? No, I mean that that that, that makes sense. It's, it's 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 what we talked about, and uh, you capture it well. Yeah. Okay. So, but uh, in this particular case, we're we're looking at limits and and uh, a, a query uh, structure called top in, and so in Presto, there's no official like uh, syntax that that supports top in, but but uh, top in is is effectively uh, effectively equivalent to you know or an order. Uh, uh, clause and an, uh, and a limit clause uh, put together because uh, basically what top is trying to do is uh, is basically saying like give me the first you know n number of of uh, values from from this query and so you can basically re reimplement that doing an order uh, by basically ordering the uh, you know from the first first ones that are coming back and basically saying give me the first you know 10, 10 of those uh, ten of those values. So, uh, so basically when we're doing a limit or a limit with an order, um, then, uh, then this, this is basically trying to, uh, internally treat these as all top end queries or, or order plus limit queries, and basically let them be handled by the same internal node. Um, so to, to demo this, I mean, I, I didn't have, before we jump, uh, just have to interrupt you for a second there, Brian. Sure. Um, before I jump into the demo, I think Martin has to rush off, uh, and I think this is we want to chat about this a bit more. Um, so, um, I think it's been awesome for you to join us, Martin. Um, we definitely learned a lot again. Yep, for sure. And yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great, and yeah. hopefully we'll be here again soon. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining, Martin. Bye. Bye, guys. Hey. 
going back to the decorrelated subqueries, thanks again. Um, I think, Matt, um, Brian, what we can also consider those is just uh, basically just to understand what this, what the the consequence is is what it would allow you to do is basically when you have a, a this uh, sub query and it's it is correlated mm -hmm. you would have to basically and you return a million rows you have to run that sub query a million times right yeah and the aim of this decorrelation is basically to limit that to one uh, run instead of a million, which obviously is a lot more yeah. efficient. So oh. this, is a, this is one of those optimizations that makes a huge difference if you can do that. And then when that's the case, unfortunately, because it was correlated before, you might have to do some sort of like temporary data generation, which is exactly what uh, is sort of happening there. So you can uh, explain that more there. Gotcha. Yeah, I will explain it here in just a second, but let me fix your, since as soon as uh, Martin hopped off, uh, it looks like you're, <laughs> you're, I got zoomed big time. <laughs> you got zoomed in big time. Zoom zoomed you. All right. All right. Here we okay, go. Cool. Uh, so, okay, cool. So uh, we're good. We're looking good now. So yeah, exactly what you said. And, uh, one more point, and I'm not gonna, we're not gonna dive too heavy into this because, uh, it's, it's, this is a kind of whole other, uh, can of worms to, to open up, but these, these also apply for those of you that already know about lateral joins. Um, this is a, a SQL concept that, uh, works very close, closely, uh, similarly to, uh, to decorrelated subqueries. Uh, I'm going to leave that to you, those that are interested to Google about that, and we can maybe cover that on a future show. But, uh, this also applies to the, uh, lateral joints as they, they act, they basically work very similarly to, uh, to decorrelated, uh, subqueries as well. So, okay. So let's talk about, uh, there's some limitations to what this, uh, this, um, decorrelating subqueries uh, enabled Presto to do. Um, let's let's go through a couple of examples of where this actually weren't runs and works, uh, and then where it fails. And we could talk through each of these examples. So, in fact, let me pull copy this because I don't think I even have this in my dbeaver instance <laughs> right now. And we'll pull up dbeaver, which is talking to um, which is talking right now to Presto. Um, and a lot of these were, uh, I pulled these directly from the test. Um, so we could see that this, this returns, uh, uh, the, basically the, the values, it basically runs. Um, and that's all this demo is really going to be showing you is that this actually returns, turns something correctly. Um, why this is such a big deal is because we have within nested within this, uh, subquery, we have this, uh, uh, limit, uh, clause here. And what was happening before is there just due to the fact that initially Presto thought, hey, we don't know, we, we have no way of knowing for sure that we can actually take this subquery um, and and make sure that it is uh, it is going to be um, a, a small, small enough set of, or a small set of values that we can basically flatten. So in mm -hmm. some in some instances, we're able to know, yeah, we can flatten this. Other times, no. So in this particular case, we have uh, the value being one and the value being one here. Now, Presto uh, will basically generate a single value one that comes back from this, even with the limit inside of, the, of here. Um, and 
it will, it, it, even though the, the number of values that could get returned from this could be greater than one, it does this little pre-evaluation to say, hey, I can tell that if I simplify this or basically by running the optimizations on this, if I simplify this, this actually ends up just becoming values one because it's when we when we basically do this, uh, uh, this value where TA equals TB, this is only gonna return the one value anyways. So I don't have to worry about limit two here. Um, so that's why we're actually able to run this. If we were to join on this and we have more than one row that gets returned from the inner join, then we actually have a failure. So returns more than one row from subquery is the one example. And we're actually gonna get a scalar subquery has returned multiple rows uh, in that particular case. Um, Sometime, and, and so that one, we actually analyzed it there. Uh, when I say analyzed it, we kind of pre-ran the query since we're uh, you know, uh, able, to, able to basically pull out some of these values. And we were able to see, hey, uh, we were able to actually um, get this, uh, this, this set of values or this how, basically determine how many rows is it possible to come from this subquery. And basically, based on that determination, we knew, hey, this is going to have a possibility to have more more than one row being returned. We're not sure if we can flatten this. And so uh, we're, we basically disable this from, from being uh, an option uh, for a subquery because we don't know basically how uh, the, this could uh, impact the performance. Um, okay, so let's go on to another one that we, again, know we can run now with this PR uh, that's been done. Uh, we, we're now down to limit one. Um, and anything, anytime, even though this would, uh, join with two of these values, uh, again, where TA, uh, is equal to T and T equals to T2 dot A, um, we know that, uh, this should be able to run because, uh, this, uh, this basically will, uh, return of, of more than one value based on this T2, uh, dot B greater than some, uh, constant. And actually now I thought I had understood this a little bit better, this particular example a little bit better. This one runs, uh, the time where it doesn't, or it fails actually, is where we're dealing with, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, and you know what, now I know why it does, because this uh, these ones end up getting flattened into a single value, but then uh, the B here, uh, even though they are not getting flattened into a single value, we only project the A here. There we go. Um, so that is why in this particular case, we were able to run this. Let's go down here where we're actually running, uh, we're, we're invoking TB now, and we actually have this uh, two and this three. If we run this, there's gonna be a non-equality predi predicate in the, in the subquery, which is uh, greater than. We run this and we actually project TB and we're gonna say the given correlated subquery is not supported due to the fact that we have this non-equality uh, predicate in there. So um, let's do the last one and I'll have a couple more words to say about this. So the last one is that top end query where we have both order by a particular column and then we limit it. Let's go ahead and run that. We see that this one also runs and in similar to with the order by, this is yet again, similar uh, top end on the non-equality. It's just the same as the last one that I had just covered. And that one fails because again, we have the uh, greater than comparison between t.b and t2.b. So the thing that I wanna kind of mention ab about these is that there are, 
anytime in general that we are not quickly able to determine that the subquery is going to be returning more than uh, one set of rows, um, and we can't, we don't have the ability to flatten something, then we basically are limiting Presto from being able to compute that due to potential performance implications there. So, so that is something that I thought was very interesting, A, just to get an understanding about how some subqueries work, uh, as also how to understand how they work with the planner. And, uh, and then just to kind of understand if you do run into this, you'll have a little bit more of an understanding of, oh, okay, so perhaps this subquery has, you know, potential performance implications, and that's why we're not actually able to run this, uh, this correlated subquery. So I have a lot more specifics about that and the, and what this basically, uh, what, what we're doing here in the, uh, in the pull requests up here in the notes, but, uh, but yeah. Manfred, did you have any comments or do we have any questions about that in the chat before we head oh, on? No, there's nothing in the in the chat. I think I just find it's it's quite interesting how how like a simple looking query can like um, by just like little changes actually be something where it doesn't make sense versus it does make sense. Yep. Um, and that that's that's kind of cool. And um, I think in the long like the more complex aspect of that would be to like actually get to a stage where it does run it up front. And yeah. then have some sort of like cross lookup with a cache table and all that kind of jazz. But then with that, you have to, how do you, you know, so this is kind of getting back to that, you know, involving the user into the, you know, there's yeah. performance implications here. So exactly. do you just do an throw an error like we're doing today? Or do you, uh, you know, make some, essentially the, the answer to this would be, you could allow the user to then overwrite that functionality in some way so that, they say, hey, okay, I know there's going to be a performance uh, hit here or potentially a performance hit here, but, you know, this, I have to run this query or else, you know, Presto is yeah. useless to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I, in most cases, you know, this is really getting into the nitty gritty of like when, where order and limit, uh, you know, uh, getting added to a, a nested subquery. So, you know, most likely there are other ways around it, depending on how your query is set up. And if you do run into these cases where you're, you're, you know, hitting these walls, uh, and you're talking where and limit and you all of a sudden you get this, you know, exception getting thrown, um, you know, at that point, definitely come to us and perhaps there's a way that you can restructure your SQL um, or get the answer in some other way. Um, and then, you know, if it becomes a big enough thing, then maybe it's something that, you know, you or somebody in the community could, could implement to kind of be that, uh, you know, that kind of, okay, set this property and then now it works. But you know, it could take forever to run. <laughs> so very cool stuff. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap things up here with the question of the week. Um, this isn't a very, uh, you know, one that needs a lot of explanation, I, I don't think, but it is one that we get asked a lot. Um, when, when people are, are new to the, the, um, to the community. So will running Presto on my relational database make processing faster? Um, and so, uh, let me see if I, yeah, so this is an actual quoted version of this, of this, uh, you know, the, of the simplified version of that question It's I've been going over the docs of Presto SQL seems to fit some of my requirements. I'm a little concerned about resources needed to run Presto in production. And because the size of my prod data is three to five gigs, uh, it's, and there's going to be very minimal data, data growth, you know, is Presto suitable for such a small data size to be running on a relational database? Like, uh, uh, like post, I think Postgres was the particular example here. And so, um, so that 
this this particular person kind of ha- already had the idea coming to us like this is probably you know useless to 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 pull presto out for a three to five gig database that uh that has you know <laughs> that's that already has you know a lot well, of yeah oh okay so uh yeah that already has uh you know this kind of uh you know very tested and true uh relational database that that can you know have all sorts of indexes and have all sorts of optimizations of their own to 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 return these queries fast so the the general gist that I want to kind of cover is like when you think about presto you know the the things that get most confused about it is a it's not a database you know we don't store our own data so we do connect uh, to source to other databases to actually pull from them um, it's not developed for OLTP workloads. That's another big, very common one. But then the final one, it's like, we're built to handle scale of terabytes of petabytes over distributed querying. And that's where Presto really shines. If you are dealing with a smaller database kind of workloads, like three to five gigs, um, and Presto has no magic solution that when you put it on top, it'll just magically make things faster you're probably gonna wanna go through typical kind of traditional tuning methods. Uh, this could be index tuning, uh, and this could tune to a specific query, or it could be tuning the the system itself in general for Postgres. At that point, you wanna kind of like look at, you know, can I, can I beef up my, if I know that it's gonna be three to five gigs, could I just, you know, basically throw 10 gigs of memory uh, at this, at this uh, instance and, you know, basically at that point, probably never run out. Uh, when I'm running queries, depending on how many, how much your query load yeah. is too on Basically this database. Basically, running this an, an in-memory database. That's totally. Yeah, and then you're gonna you're gonna get it super fast at that point. So, um, so the the basic answer to this one, and we finally have like, I mean, you could say it depends because that's usually our answer to all that's, of these. That is my answer actually. I was gonna say like really <laughs> like okay. So if the limited question is. Can you query the database with Presto and is it going to be faster? Then the answer is probably no. But in most cases, that's not actually what you want to do. In most cases, you want to go, well, actually, I want to query that database, but I also want to like, you know, yeah. link it to these log files in Hive or link it to Elasticsearch. And then it is a totally useful use case to use Presto because you can actually do that without like working with APIs and mucking around. You can just do it in your SQL. And then it is not necessarily faster to query your relational database, but it is faster than any other approach to get all the data from the different data sources plopped together. Yeah. And then it's totally a useful use case. Right? Yeah, if you're trying to basically, as soon as you need to join uh, a da- one database in in one you know let's say zone system or sector or system, and you have another database that you want to join, and that immediately validates the Presto. Uh, the other one is like if you are you know the one kind of let's just say if you're just doing the I have one database and I need to swap it. If that database is you know Hadoop Hive running on Hadoop, you know then then in that case yes you can you if you swap Hive runtime with Hadoop or Presto runtime. Uh, then that's going to be faster. That's going to be that. That was initially the 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 base case reason of Presto being being uh, created, and then it scaled out to this. You know, because they uh, it was architected the way it was. Uh, you know, you, you were able to have this nice federated use case as well that that fits a lot of people's needs. And so, you know, whether you're trying to you know do fast querying over your S3 or HDFS is is that one you always use Presto. If you're going to be trying to do uh, uh, 
federated querying of any any sort uh definitely use presto if you literally just have a single database which i don't know maybe you're just a startup <laughs> uh and you just have one single database to run your whole thing and it's three to five gigs and it's not going to grow in that particular case yeah uh then you you're probably going to want to soup up your um you know your your press your postgres or your mysql or your your uh whatever whatever sql database uh re traditional relational oltp sql database that you have running um so you know one thing that i was like what i what i actually find interesting about this also is i think there's some interesting edge cases where it kind of gets like into like ooh like imagine you have a like a, a large like really massive relational database okay that runs on like one server and that server is pretext uh, mm -hmm. in terms of processing if you throw presto on top of that it would open multiple connections to that one server, read the data via multiple nodes, and then do a lot of the downstream aggregation and that kind of processing within Presto. Theoretically, it might be possible to actually get faster with that. But practically, what often happens is that Presto actually can get to a stage where it can flood the underlying system because it opens, like if you have a large Presto class, then it yeah. really tries to like go parallel a lot. Mm -hmm it can produce a, a significant load on the poor like single database that tries to serve the traffic and press is just like, give it all to me at once, right? Yeah. So it makes me wonder- kind of interesting, right? So you, there's a, I think one of the original use cases at, uh, at Facebook was uh, they were doing those distributed MySQL things, right? I think they had like distributed MySQL, whatever. Yeah, they, they, it's called sharded in, in the MySQL world. So yeah. you have this where it's multiple so if you had something like that, then probably yeah. Like if you're yeah. and, and if you're talking about one single box, I still think most of the time it's, it's going to be no. Know, but but yeah. if you're if you're talking yeah multiple boxes and you can do you know like yeah sharding, uh, uh, it's also what they call it a Mongo. Um, yeah. So um, but yeah, if you're doing sharding uh, and and you have some way to basically distribute uh, how Presto can can interact with your you know your database, even though it's one database, it's you know, it's it's interacting with another distributed database at that point. But I don't know if that's even possible, like for configuration and stuff well, like, like that. Like, like I know that the, the Elasticsearch connector can, for example, do that. Like it yeah. can talk to Elasticsearch cluster and figure out data local-wise which yep. node in the cluster to talk to. And it will just talk to that one, get that data, talk to the other one, get that data, yeah. and so on, and, and actually be super fast doing it that way, right? Yeah, so, it starts bartering with the master, and then the master is just like, hey, this is the, the node, and yeah, then from then the on, over there. you know that IP address, and so you can just talk directly. Because every single Elasticsearch cluster is, is you know, all, all ex unless you explicitly turn that off, all every single node in Elasticsearch cluster has the same, you know, port open uh, as, as the master cluster does exactly, to do yeah. those queries. So cool. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always quite an fun, right? Like it's <laughs> exactly right. So. Always. It depends. But then like, I would say in this constrained case that, that we used as yeah. an example, you know, and, you're dealing overkill. with one box. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally overkill. Um, so, but you know, we're biased to say that, you know, in general, you know, for, for all sorts of cases, you should just use Presto. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, uh, with that, uh, that uh, being it, is there anything you wanted to add before we uh, we end the show, Manfred? No, um, I just uh, want to say thanks for joining us in all these uh, last sessions. We'll be doing more in the next year. So join us again for various events. We'll be running the Presto Community Broadcast next year, and we'll have a lot of fun with you all, hopefully. 
For sure. Uh, one last thing uh, to remember. Yeah. So as Manfred mentioned, it's in the next year. So we will be skipping uh, the day before the new year, which is December 31st. So that would have been the day we would have been doing this next show. But we decided we wanted to take a holiday. We probably want you to take a holiday. Everybody exactly. needs a break because of this crazy pandemic. So let's all take a break and uh, we'll see you guys uh, in a couple. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, January 14th. We will see you uh, at the same time, same bad channel. Uh, um, music for the show is uh, is Mega Man Six Gameplay by Christoph uh, Slavikowski. That's also in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.